The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Tobias. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Christ the King, and uh, it's just my privilege to to get to open up God's Word for us this morning. For the next two weeks, um, we're going to continue with our normal Summer Psalms series, and then uh, and then we're going to do something a little different. Uh, we're going to look at the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, which I'm excited about. Wish we could do the whole thing, but maybe one day. Um, anyway, this morning, uh, we're looking at Psalm 75. So I invite you to go ahead and open up your copy of God's Word to Psalm 75. And let's pay careful attention. This is God's holy Word as we read it. Psalm 75. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks, for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. From the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for God's blessing on this word. Almighty God, we come before you, we bow before you, the great lifter up, uh, upper, uh, the one true God, the one who created the heavens and earth, all things seen and unseen. Father, we bow before you as creatures to the creator. And we praise you this morning. And we thank you, Lord, for this word. Uh, for this psalm, and we ask, Lord, that you, uh, by your Spirit, will open up our eyes and ears, and that you will soften our hearts, that we might perceive the truth of this word, and that, that we might take it deeply within us, so that we might know more about who you are, and what you've done, and who we are, and what you call us to be, Lord. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, so, uh, so Psalm 75. Uh, I decided, to, uh, when I was thinking about this months ago, I guess, um, uh, and I was trying to decide, okay, well, we've done lots of psalms. Uh, we're keeping a schedule uh, as we go through the summer, and, we, and uh, I haven't done a psalm of Asaph. So I thought, all right, well, I'll do a psalm of Asaph. Asaph, he penned uh, most of the book of book three of the Psalter, 73 to 83. 
uh, and hadn't done one. What I didn't anticipate, however, was the, was the structural complexity of this psalm. It's probably not readily apparent. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna diverge from the ESV, the extra special version, um, a little bit. The meaning, sorry for the pastoral humor, but the, the meaning, uh, you know, they're, they're, we're gonna agree. Uh, like, but uh, I, see, I, see, I see the voices a little differently. And what do I mean by that? Well, if you look at your ESV, just quickly, um, you can make an outline. I saw, I saw a video, <laughs> this is off the cuff. I saw a video this week uh, of this young lady and she said, there's nothing less motivating than having enough time. <laughs> and uh, I've known about this psalm and I've been thinking about it. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I've been thinking about it. But I couldn't land on the structure of this psalm until yesterday. And I've known about this. Anyway, this is how I work. I, I, I am motivated by the tyranny of the urgent. <laughs> anyway, so what do I mean by this? Okay, you'll notice a space after verse 1, after verse 5, after verse 8. Okay, that's because the ESV is reading it this way. The ESV says uh, the community is praying in verse 1. God is speaking in verses 2 through 5. Asaph is talking about God in verses 6 through 8. And then he, again, talks, but this time in the first person, in verses 9 through 10. Perfectly plausible. I just don't agree with it, and here's why. Um, th here's what I would do. So if you want to make a note, um, this is how I read it. Verse 1, yes, community prays. Verses 2 through 3 are God speaking. Now, and then verses 4 through 9, Asaph is speaking. And then verse 10, God has the final word. Okay? Why do I do that? Well, you'll notice, Penny, Penny has uh, brought this out a bunch. You'll notice there's a word, Selah, at the end of verse 3. And we don't really know what that means. It could mean like rising. It, it, it's, it's, a mar it's marginalia. <laughs> you know, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, maybe some type of musical instruction. But what we do know is it generally ends a section. And so what I think is going on here is we've ended God's speech and then um, Asaph is, is starting. And I'll explain, you know, when we get to it and uh, as we go through it, um, hopefully that'll become more clear. The other thing is you'll notice in verse four, just to uh, hear, uh, so you understand where I'm coming from. Verse four, the first, fr the phrase is, I say, You'll see that? Well, 14 out of 15 times in the Psalter, that refers to the one praying, not God. And the 15th time is contested. <laughs> so this leads me to think, eh, I, think this is As I think this is Asaph. And I'll give my reasons as we go through it. The other thing is I think God has the final say in verse 10. Uh, you'll notice if you look at verse 10, see, the psalm is largely about not exalting yourself. Okay? So I find it pretty difficult that Asaph would all of a sudden take that uh, and say that. I think instead God is being given the final word and he's the one saying it. Is it true that there are some psalms um, <clears throat> where the psalmist will say something like, I will cut off the horns, that type of thing? Yes, but they're Davidic psalms. Uh, they're royal psalms. There's no sense here that this, in fact, this isn't a psalm of Asaph. So I think this is God speaking. Okay, enough of structure, okay? I just, I wanted you to get, a, get your bearings for where I'm coming from. Okay, so, so what, what is going on in this psalm? What can we learn 
Well, um, I think the first thing we need to note is that this psalm, Psalm 75, it flows naturally from Psalm 73 and 74. In both of those psalms, the world is depicted as turned upside down. The wicked prosper, seemingly without any judgment. Uh, for example, in Psalm 73, verses 6 through 9, we read this. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through, through fatness. Their hearts overflow with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression, they set their mouths against the heavens, and their teeth, strut, their tongue struts through the earth. But more than that, when we get to Psalm 74, we actually read about an attack on the temple, on the abode of the Lord's name. Verse 7 of, of Psalm 74, we read this, They set your sanctuary on fire. They profane the dwelling place of your name bringing it down to the ground. And so we hear the psalmist in verse 10 of Psalm 74. We hear, we hear Asaph ask, How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? And then as he closes this psalm, we hear him pray for his brothers and sisters, the downtrodden, the poor and the needy, we hear him pray for them not to shrink back in verse 21, but to praise God's name. That's how he brings Psalm 74 to a close. And so I think it's likely that as we come to our psalm this morning, in verse 1, what we are seeing is the response of the needy to that prayer of Asaph in Psalm 74. You notice what they say. They say, we give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks, for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. But I want you to notice something as they say that. We don't actually hear them recount the deeds of the Lord. We might expect that. After all, in Psalm 74, after Asaph, talks about the, the ransacking of the temple. In verse 13, he begins to rattle off the deeds, the marvelous deeds of the Lord. He says this in verse 13, You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the, of the sea monsters on the waters. He's talking about the Exodus event. And then in verses 16 and 7, Yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. You hear how he's recounting the marvelous deeds of the Lord in creation. But here in Psalm 75, although we hear the people say, we give thanks to you, your name is near, we recount your deeds, we don't actually hear them say that, but instead in verse 2, we hear God speak. Not the people. And he says this, At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. And I think this is an unexpected interjection by God. And I think it hints that there's something else going on in the heart's of the people of the Lord. It's as if 
God senses behind the people's praise and thanksgiving. That his name is near, even though his temple has been ransacked. That he's near. It's as if he senses that there are actually seeds of doubt. Lord, are you really near to us? The world's crashing around us. Your temple has been defiled. The sanctuary of your name has been ransacked. We don't see you defending your reputation and your people. And it doesn't seem to be stopping. Lord, are you really near? Or have you abandoned us? And so the Lord interrupts. And he brings a word of assurance. Declaring that he's got the times under control. And the world in his hands. That when the world seems to totter. When it looks out of joint because of sin and rebellion and injustice. He's the great stabilizer. Steadying its pillars. And in his time, he will make all things right. Friends, I think this is something that we, like the Israelites, need to hear. After all, the world looks pretty out of joint to us, doesn't it? When we turn on the news, we regularly hear about senseless acts of violence, both here and abroad. We engage in pop culture. How often do we hear the name of the Lord reviled and his people and their beliefs despised and vilified? And you know, individually we experience injustice. Many of us are victims of abuse. We're objects of hateful gossip and slander. And we watch as those we know who refuse to follow Jesus prosper while our own circumstances grow increasingly difficult, even while we strive to live in obedience to the Lord. And in the midst of all this, it's easy for us to begin to doubt and to ask, Lord, are you really near us? Are you really taking care of us? Do you really have it all under control? And you know, it makes me think of the Apostle Paul you might, you might recall how often he suffered as a missionary to the Gentiles. And yet, he was convinced that God's grace was sufficient for him. And that God's power was made manifest in his weakness. And I think this is why he was able to express such unwavering confidence in the Lord. And in his strength, when he said in 2 Corinthians 12, 10, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Brothers and sisters, the Lord's declaration in verses 2 and 3 is a call for us, likewise, to put our confidence in the Lord, to trust that despite appearances, He is near to those whom He loves, and that He will bring justice in His timing. But more than that, I think it's an invitation for us to praise the Lord, even when the earth seems to totter all around us, to extol him as the sovereign judge and sustainer of the world. Kind of like Hannah did when she endured the incessant and unjust ridicule of her rival, Panina, remember? 
Remember what she said in 1 Samuel 2, 8? She prayed to the Lord this. She said, he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Listen to this. She said, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Well, as Asaph continues in verses 4 through 9, you remember this is where I think he is the one who begins to speak. You notice that Selah again. If any of you have a New Living Translation, you might see right below it, interlude. <laughs> That's how the New Living Translation editors translate Selah, interlude. Well, Asaph uh, begins to speak, and he begins to address the community with a warning that extends all the way through verse 8. Now, why would he do this? Why does he feel the need to warn the community? But friends, I think we need to keep in mind that when we experience injustice, when the world seems out of joint to us, if we're honest, we're not only tempted to doubt God's presence and His goodness. We're also tempted to envy the prosperity of the wicked. We're tempted to emulate them in their arrogance and their claims of autonomy. And we're tempted to seek our own justice, are we not? In our own manner and in our own timing. You know, it reminds me, as a Tolkien fan, it reminds me of the temptation of Boromir at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring, if you're familiar with it. And if you're not, you can track with this anyway. You remember what he said uh, when he was filled with arrogance and he was tempted to forsake the wisdom of the fellowship, and he desired instead to claim the ring of power for his own in order to make things right in the world. He said this to Frodo. I love this. He said this, true-hearted men, they will not be corrupted. We do not desire the power of wizard lords, only strength to defend ourselves, strength in a just cause. And behold, in our need, chance brings to light the ring of power. It is a gift, I say. It is mad not to use it, to use the power of the enemy against him. The fearless, the ruthless, these alone will achieve victory. The ring would give me power of command. And all men would flock to my banner. Did you hear that? He said, the ring would give me power of command. Friends, Boromir was deluded in his estimation of his own virtue, and he began to boast. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that he died <coughs> full of regret. But you know, we don't have to go to Tolkien to make this point. Listen to what the psalmist confesses in Psalm 73, verses 2 through 5. He says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Friends, Asaph himself understood how easily it is for us to despair in the midst of a topsy-turvy world and to envy the prosperity of the wicked. And this is why we hear him address the community with a fit warning in verses 4 through 8. 
saying, I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with a haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who judges, who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. You know, this imagery of a lifted horn and a haughty neck, it might sound awkward to us, but it was fitting for the agrarian Israelites. They were familiar with wild bulls who would rear their heads and stiffen their necks, refusing to submit to a yoke and be led, prancing around in defiance and self-exaltation. It reminds me of the, the children's story of Ferdinand. You all know that story? You remember what Ferdinand did, but you also remember what Ferdinand's peer bulls used to do when the, when the folks from Madrid would come for the bullfights. What would they do? They would raise their horns. They would stiffen their necks. They would prance around and gore one another. All uh, essentially saying, look at me. Look how powerful I am. Now, I'm not saying that Asaph is calling us to be a Ferdinand and to just go sit under a cork tree and smell the flowers. But he is warning us about being arrogant, unbridled bulls. Friends, we need to grasp this imagery and take it to heart. You see, when we refuse to be bridled by the Lord, when we refuse to submit to his sovereign leadership and timing in the midst of the pain and suffering that we face, we delude ourselves into thinking that we're in control and that we know what's right and that the Lord doesn't. And like the Israelites, we need to be reminded, as Asaph reminds us in verse 7, that it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Perhaps you don't think you struggle with such an inflated view of yourself. Perhaps instead you're tempted to rely on the boastful claims and plans of those around you when you experience injustice, rather than to rely on the sovereign goodness and timing of the Lord. But notice what Asaph says in verses 6 and 7. He says, For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Did you hear what, what he said there? He says, Not from the east, not from the west, not from the wilderness will you be exalted. You see, what Asaph's doing here is giving his brothers and sisters a warning not to find refuge or to seek justice in the arrogant schemes of others. And you know, it reminds me of King Ahaz, whose name, incidentally, uh, means he grasps. It reminds me of how uh, the rebellious kings of Syria and Ephraim, they made an attack on Jerusalem. And you remember how Ahaz responded? Did he seek the Lord and put his confidence in his deliverance? No. Instead, he sought salvation outside of the Lord. He looked to the boastful pagan neighbor to the north and east, and he made, and he made an alliance with the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser. And this ultimately led to the downfall of the northern kingdom. And friends, in doing so, he confirmed the words 
The prophet Isaiah spoke to him when he counseled him beforehand to trust the Lord and not to fear the attacks of the kings of Syria and Ephraim, saying to him in Isaiah 7, 9, if you are not firm in faith, Ahaz, you will not be firm at all. Brothers and sisters, we need to ask, why did Isaiah say this to him? Because he knew, like Asaph, that God is the great stabilizer of the world. He's the one that reserves the right both to humble and to exalt. He understood that God alone has the power, the wisdom, and the righteousness to bring justice at just the right time. And that his people, as his children, are called to put their confidence in him alone. And you know, he understood too, like Asaph, that if we fail to do this in the midst of the unjust trials we face, if instead we put our trust in ourselves or others, if we're not firm in faith, friends, we will not be firm at all. And we'll face the certain judgment of Almighty God. And so in order to bring the certainty of God's judgment against the faithless and rebellious into sharp focus, we hear Asaph draw on the metaphor of the cup in verse 8. Listen to what he says. He says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Now this image of foaming wine. This is another image that's probably lost on us. The idea is that this is a fully fermented wine. It's full strength, probably mixed with maybe herbs, spices, maybe stronger spirits in order to increase its taste and potency. It's an image that's used regularly throughout the Old Testament and three or four times in the book of Revelation. And it's, a, it's an image that depicts the awful judgment of the Lord God upon the wicked. Job calls this image, he calls it the cup of of God's wrath. Ezekiel calls it the cup of horror and desolation. And Isaiah calls it the cup of staggering. It's a startling, yet fitting image for God's holy judgment. I say startling because... It pictures God as a sort of lethal sommelier serving a deadly concoction. It's fitting, though, because it's a just judgment for those who deny God's right to rule, for those who are self-indulgent and self-confident. As one commentator noted, in several passages that feature the cup of God's wrath, we see that sinners start out arrogant but lose any vestige of human dignity as they drink the cup. God hands them down to its very dregs. They stagger and fall, unconscious in the streets. They're exposed and disgraced. They go mad. They're scorned and walked over by their enemies. Yet, clearly, their own choices, not God's capricious anger, have precipitated their destruction. It's a fitting judgment. Perhaps you're sitting here today and you're thinking to yourself, but Tobias, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't realize the pain I've experienced at the hands of others. Where's God been in all of it? 
How long am I supposed to wait for him to make it right? Or perhaps you're here today and you're overcome with guilt at the thought of your own faithlessness and pride and grasping for control in the midst of your suffering. And the thought of God's judgment is weighing heavy on your heart. But friends, I want you to hear how Asaph brings this psalm to a close. Listen to what he says in verse 9. He says, but I will declare it forever. I'll sing praises to the God of Jacob. Here we see Asaph putting his emphatic stamp of faith on all that has been said. Asaph, who surely knew, like any human being would, the sting of injustice, who we heard earlier confess his envy of the boastful and lament the trampling of the Lord's temple. Here he now boldly declares, in stark contrast to the boastful, I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. Indeed, I will declare it forever, even when the earth totters. And friends, the ground for Asaph's emphatic declaration of faith in the Lord is made clear as he steps aside and God himself claims the final word, saying with authority in verse 10, all the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. And I want you to notice especially that last line. But the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. It's interesting to me that that word righteous there is singular. You see, later in the Psalter in Psalm 132, 17, we hear God in faithfulness to his covenant with David promise to make a horn sprout for David. And then much later on in fulfillment of this promise, we hear John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, apply this promise from Psalm 132. Apply it to Jesus as he prophesies in Luke 1. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. Friends, the point that we must not miss here is that God's justice came at the perfect time. It came in the fullness of time as he raised up a horn of salvation for you and for me in the gift of his son Jesus and through his death, burial, and resurrection. And friends, the beautiful, glorious scandal of the gospel is that Jesus, the only one among all of humankind who did not deserve to drink the cup of God's wrath. He surrendered himself to crucifixion, praying through tears in the garden, yet not my will, Lord, but thy will be done. And he drank it to the dregs so that he might offer to us the cup of blessing and drink it new with us when he returns in glory. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus, he did that for you. Whatever you're suffering, he did that for you. Not to provide you with comfort that would one day fade, but to secure your everlasting inheritance. And he did it not because of your perfect, faithful obedience, but in spite of it. Brothers and sisters, may we all, like Asaph, 
joyfully submit to the perfect justice and timing of the one true God and declare these things forever. May we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, a horn of righteousness for our salvation, and say with the psalmist, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you, Lord. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for the blessing that we have this morning to come, to gather, to read your word, to hear your word, to sing your praises. Oh, Father, these are all blessings that you have given to us. We ask, Lord, that we will not despise them. And we ask, Lord, that you will cause your word to go deep within us this morning. Oh, Father, make us faithful to what you have called us to. We ask, Lord, that your, your praise will be on our lips moment by moment in each and every circumstance. We pray this in the mighty name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.